Welcome to the fourth episode of our podcast's second season, Scary But True Campfire Stories, brought to you by Dudes Camping, hosted and narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. Thanks for listening, and please spread the word, tell your friends, tell a stranger, post it on Facebook, Twitter X, Instagram, Truth Social, TikTok, and any other social media outlet that doesn't know the difference between checking facts and pushing lies. Our goal is to share true stories of the strange, supernatural, ghostly, and unexplained as we gather around the virtual campfire. Or maybe you are sitting around a real campfire right now. Maybe you have a strange but true story that you'd like to share. Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail.com with your own Bigfoot, UFO, ghost, conspiracy, or unexplained supernatural story, and we'll consider it for broadcast. Don't forget to visit us on YouTube and Facebook at Dudes Camping. Urban legends have fascinated people for generations. Whether they are true or not, we love to believe them. Usually, the legends are told several degrees from the person who had the experience and are manipulated in the direction of the intended audience. Some stories are so common that it's hard to believe them at all. The headless horseman evolved into the headless motorcycleman. There is an urban legend of this throttle demon in all 50 states, but Ohio alone has 24 counties, each with their own version. So how do we know that the black-eyed children are not just such an urban legend? No one has ever caught them on recording. No one has ever provided physical evidence of a visitation. No one has ever invited them in and lived to tell the tale about it. Or have they? The research in this episode relies heavily upon David Weatherly's book, The Black-Eyed Children, and can be found on Amazon or by visiting his website, www.eerielights.com. Sit back, relax, and enjoy The Black-Eyed Children. Part 3 What do they want? Why are they here? If they are trying to help us, then why did they seem so sinister? If they are trying to hurt us, then why did they need our permission? The more we uncover about these creepy kids, the more questions arise. Are they good? Are they evil? Are they even real? We may never know their true agenda, but we can infer from their actions that they are not here to help humanity into the next level of evolution, as some New Agers claim. Their agenda seems to line up with David Jacobs' theory that aliens are creating a human hybrid race for their own purposes. But for whatever reason, they need our permission. They need to be invited in. What makes human abductions different from cattle mutilations? If we are just a space alien's lab experiment or highly evolved monkeys, then there would be no need for permission. But if we are created in the image of God, as the book of Genesis purports, then there would seem to be a spiritual element that prevents them from just taking us. And what happens when we do give them that permission? What happens when we do invite them in? We can assume the worst based upon their tactics. But there is one case that might give us a glimpse into the dark and evil intentions of the black-eyed children. My name is Sharon. I'm a registered nurse in a rural area of Iowa. I live in a small town with my husband and ten-year-old son. 
Both my family and my husband's family live in the same area. It was a Sunday afternoon, and I'd worked a long shift at the hospital. My son had spent the night with his grandmother, so on my way home, I stopped to pick him up. We lived about ten miles from my mother-in-law. Halfway between us was a convenience store where I would often stop. On this particular day, I stopped at the market and ran in for a carton of milk and some cereal. I parked in front of the store and jumped out. I closed the door and left my son in the back seat of the SUV. It was a safe town, and I knew the area and I would only be a moment. I hit the automatic lock and entered the market. Moments later, when I returned to the car, I jumped in and put the bag on the passenger seat. I put the key in the ignition and turned the engine over, looking up in the rearview mirror at the same time. What I saw stunned me. Staring back at me in the rearview mirror was a young boy with solid black eyes. I felt terrified. I wanted to scream, but when I opened my mouth, nothing came out. The child was staring at me with a cold glare, and he was sitting right next to my son, unusually close in the large back seat. Seeing my son beside this boy was enough to jar my mind into action. I tried to control my panic as I jumped back out of the vehicle. I jerked open the back door and yanked my son out quickly. The boy with the black eyes simply glared at me as I pulled my son out of the vehicle. I rushed back into the convenience store, pulling my son along. The clerk, seeing the panicked look on my face, quickly came from behind the counter and asked what was wrong and if someone was hurt. The only response I could manage was a stammered reply, Someone's in my car. The clerk knew me from my frequent visits. He rushed to the front door to see what was happening outside. He turned and asked me if the intruder was armed. I shook my head no. The clerk assumed that someone was trying to steal my car and expected to see the vehicle pulling away or already long gone. Going out to the parking lot, however, he found the SUV parked in front of the store. The engine was running, and both the driver's door and the driver's side passenger door were standing open. The clerk approached the car carefully and looked inside. There was no sign of anyone in or around my car. The clerk scanned the rest of the parking lot, but it too was empty. He reached into the car, turned the engine off, and took the keys as a precaution. He closed both doors of the car, looking around the lot again. The market was positioned in a very open area. There were no trees or other buildings close by to provide a hiding place for potential criminals. Cautiously, the clerk looked around both sides of the building, then the back. There was no sign of anyone on the premises. Perhaps the carjacker had driven off with an accomplice. Going back inside, he assured me that there was no sign of anyone in the vehicle or in the entire parking lot for that matter. He asked me if I had gotten a good look at the person. Was he by himself or was someone waiting for him? Was there another car he could have driven off in? The clerk continued to ask me questions. I was still too shaken to respond. I stood near the counter with my arms around my son. I gave no response, so the clerk turned toward the counter, stating that he was calling the police. I stopped him. No, don't call the police. The clerk gave me a puzzled look. Why shouldn't I call the cops? Someone just tried to steal your car. The last thing I wanted to do was try to explain what I had seen to a police officer. 
they would think I was lying or delusional in, in, in a small town. Word would get around. It would cause a lot of talk and trouble that I didn't want to deal with. I explained briefly to the clerk that I simply hadn't got a good look at the person and that there was nothing I could tell the police to aid in catching him. I added that there may have been another car and the person was probably long gone. The clerk was not happy with my response. He added that he was still going to call the police and I could tell them whatever I did remember. He didn't want any potential criminals hanging around his place of business. He often worked late and there were other customers to consider. Look, I said, I don't want to make a big deal out of this because it was just a kid. Maybe he was just playing around or something, but I don't think we need the police out chasing some kid that I can't even describe. Why don't you just keep an eye out and if some suspicious kids come back around, call the police then. The clerk, while hesitant, gave up at this point and finally agreed with me. I suppose if it was just a kid, we can forget about it. He asked if there was anything he could do for me, and I replied no. I just wanted to go home. Still shaken, I decided to call my husband. I wanted to get our son home, but I just couldn't bring myself to drive the SUV. I couldn't shake the image of that boy staring at me in the mirror. I pulled out my cell phone and quickly called my husband, worried that the clerk would still want to report the incident to the police. I reached my husband Tom with just a couple of rings and asked him to come and meet me at the store right away. Not only was Tom puzzled at my request, he'd never heard such a strange tone from me before. He reached the store in just a few minutes and I went outside to meet him. I explained briefly that someone had gotten into the SUV while it was parked in front of the store. Tom quickly asked if I were okay. I'm really shaken, I replied. The clerk came out and checked and couldn't find anyone, but I just don't want to drive the SUV. It was only a kid, I tried to reassure my husband. It just startled me and I'm feeling strange. Can you drive my SUV back and we'll take your truck home? I wasn't ready to explain the details to Tom. I wanted to get home, calm down, and then talk to him about what I'd seen. He agreed to my request, put us in his truck, and he watched us pull out of the parking lot. Tom decided to go in and talk to the clerk for a moment. He knew the man and wanted to find out if he had seen anything or could give him more information. I was upset and may have missed something. The clerk assured Tom that he had checked the parking lot himself and that he'd walked all around the store but could find no sign of an intruder. He seemed a little skeptical in talking about the incident, and Tom thought perhaps the clerk didn't believe my story. Still think we should have called the police and let them handle this, the clerk grumbled. Tom assured him that he would talk to me, and if he deemed it necessary, he would report it to the police himself. He went back outside and looked around the lot before getting into my SUV. Tom glanced into the back seat, but there was nothing there. He closed the door and turned over the engine. It was then that he noticed a strange odor. It hit him in waves and seemed to get worse with each moment. He said it smelled like dirty diapers, but it had been a long time since our son was in diapers. He looked around the SUV again to see if something was rotting in the back or under one of the seats. Finding nothing... He rolled down the windows and started for home, hoping that the car would air out on the drive. A few miles down the highway, 
Tom was in an accident. The SUV ended up wrapped around a pole and was totaled. Another motorist passing by a few moments later saw the wrecked vehicle and phoned for help. Tom was rushed to the hospital. Fortunately, he had escaped without any life-threatening injuries, but it was feared he had a concussion. Meanwhile, I had reached home where I made a cup of tea and proceeded to speak to our son about the strange boy who was in the car. Where did that boy come from? I asked him. He came to the car when you were in the store, he replied. Did you know him from school? I asked. No, Mommy. I just met him today. I was calming down, trying to logically examine the experience I just had. I questioned myself, wondering why I had felt such fear from a little boy. The eyes, of course, had startled me, and there were rare medical conditions that could do strange things to the eyes. Perhaps I had overreacted. There was something else, though, something menacing about the boy. I couldn't shake the image of him staring at me in the mirror or the glare he had when I pulled my son from the car. What did he want? I asked my son. Oh, he said he wanted to ride to our house, he replied. I thought we could play. So he just got in the car? Oh no, Mommy, I asked him to get in. He said he wasn't allowed in unless I asked him. I felt a cold chill run up my spine at my son's comments. I couldn't imagine having that strange boy in our home. Do you remember what his eyes looked like? I asked him. No, there wasn't nothing special about them. What's wrong, Mommy? He asked me. Did I do something wrong? Before I could answer, the phone rang. I was informed that my husband had been in an accident and was at the hospital. I was assured that his injuries were not life-threatening, but I quickly gathered my things and my son and rushed to the hospital to be with him. The hospital kept Tom overnight for observation to ensure that he didn't have any serious head trauma. He had struck his head during the accident and, as a result, was complaining of a headache. By later that evening, it was gone and Tom seemed fine. He couldn't remember the accident itself. Although he tried to recall details, the last thing he could remember clearly was pulling out of the gas station parking lot and heading for home. He recalled that the foul smell lingered in the SUV even with the windows rolled down. Somewhere along those few miles between the store and our home, something caused Tom to wreck the vehicle. The doctors believed that he may have blacked out or perhaps striking his head had caused him to forget what had caused the wreck. He told me about the foul odor in the vehicle, asking if I'd let something spoil or had left trash under the seats. I told my husband that the SUV was fine when I left work and there was no odor. Tom speculated that the odor may have caused his blackout. It doesn't make any sense, though, he told me. Even if it was some kind of gas... I had the windows down, so there should have been enough airflow to keep me awake. Late into the night, I finally told my husband the full story of my encounter with the black-eyed child in the back seat of the SUV. Tom listened intently, asking me questions only after I'd finished the story. You're sure you've never seen this boy before? No, never. There was something cold about him, Tom. He scared me. I related the conversation I'd had with our son after the incident. 
What do you think it was? I asked him. Tom had grown up in a religious environment and was more devoted to spiritual ideas than I was. Without hesitation, he replied, I think it was something evil. You would think that our story ended there, but there's more. Tom was released from the hospital the following day, but the days that followed, our son became ill. At first, it seemed as though he had come down with a bad cold. Cold medicines did nothing to alleviate the symptoms, and his condition grew worse. We had his doctor examine him and said that the boy had come down with a flu virus. He prescribed medications and sent us on our way. A few days into the regimen, he developed what appeared to be measles. The doctor was puzzled. He could not verify measles, and it seemed as though the child no longer had the same flu symptoms. Over the next several weeks, our boy exhibited a wide variety of symptoms, from high fevers to stomach aches, sores on the body, and blurred vision. Except for the occasional cold, our son had always been a healthy child. Constant tests by doctors could not solve the puzzle of the boy's condition. There was no evidence of disease found in his body, and there was no history in our family of illness that would account for the conditions that were causing our little boy to suffer. Tom and I were convinced that our son was sick as a result of the encounter with the black-eyed child. We began to pray on a regular basis and asked our family to also pray for the boy's recovery. Weeks after the first signs of being sick, our boy suddenly recovered. I remember the sudden change. He'd been up most of the night, complaining of stomach pains and unable to sleep. Sometime after 3 a.m., he finally fell asleep. I dozed off in the chair next to his bed. I woke up just after sunrise, and there he was, sitting up in bed. To my surprise, he was smiling and asking for food. I jumped up and checked his forehead. His temperature felt normal. Gone, too, were the marks that resembled measles on his arms and legs. I started crying. I was so happy. I didn't know if it was the prayer or just a matter of time, but what mattered was that my son was okay. My husband and I are convinced that the encounter with the black-eyed boy was a brush with something that doesn't belong here. I know that somehow that creepy boy caused my husband's accident and my son's illness. I just pray that we never see him or anything like him again. The strange circumstances surrounding this incident, like the car crash and the unknown medical condition of the boy, could just be coincidence even though the chances are very slim. What was the black-eyed boy planning to do? Did the son get mild radiation sickness from being too close, or were the health issues somehow related to their ominous schemes? There are plenty of false and misleading stories online. Children being born in the COVID era with black eyes or as a result of the vaccine, so they say. The black-eyed child of Cannock Chase in Staffordshire who was caught on camera by a medium and claims he is just a poor, helpless spirit needing the help of special humans to ascend. People chasing them down or drawing them in with a certain audio frequency. But if any of the current theories are correct, then they wouldn't be so easy to call, create, or catch. The prevailing theory is that they are the alien-human hybrids 
from the extraterrestrial breeding plan of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. The only problem is that this is an assumption upon assumption theory. In other words, we have to assume they are aliens, and we have to assume that they are visiting us from another galaxy. We have to assume they are abducting us. We have to assume their agenda, and with all those assumptions, we assume that black-eyed children are the result. This all may be true, but it's all based on the lack of evidence. The second most prevailing theory is that they are demonic entities or the spirits of children who died. Again, the lack of evidence would lead us to assume this theory based upon our worldview. It may be a correct one, but it's not a provable one. Another theory is that they are the result of a mass collective consciousness creating a reality. There is no real evidence for this either. There was one experiment done, however, by Joshua P. Warren, a paranormal investigator who created a haunted house that soon became a real haunted house simply by convincing other people that it was real. A very interesting study. The only evidence we really have are testimonies. Some testimonies are more credible than others, but the human brain is very mysterious. When confronted with the unfamiliar, our brain will make up events or leave information out to make sense of it. There is sensory gating that takes place so that we can fall asleep on a plane, but wake up as soon as our child starts crying. You may have heard it said that we only use 10% of our brains, but this is not true. Scientists only understand about 10% of our brains because they know what neurons do, but have no idea what the other 90% does. There is a medical condition called Charles Bonnet Syndrome, where the brain fills in false information that the eye does not see due to age-related macular degeneration, glaucoma, or diabetic retinotherapy. People will see children, people dressed as if they were living in the past, and even dragons or unicorns. This might account for some of the cases, but not all of them. And just how credible are these stories? The Brian Bethel case that started it all in 1996 was simply a story he shared online. He was an aspiring journalist, and if you read the original story, you will find many misspelled words, improper grammar, and run-on sentences, things you would not expect from somebody who studied journalism, almost as if it was deliberately written to sound like somebody else wrote it. The story of Harold was compiled by his surviving family members, each one remembering different aspects and telling it differently. Trying to retell somebody else's story will never be accurate no matter how it is retold. Some elements are left out, some elements are filled in. And why do we never see credible cases where there are two or more witnesses? Why does this seem to be a uniquely Western cultural phenomena? These questions need to be asked if we ever want to uncover the truth. One important question we should be asking is if the black-eyed children are really visiting us, is it possible to ward them off? You have heard it said that positivity breeds positivity and negativity breeds negativity. If you spend your time dwelling in dark, occult things, they will manifest in your life, and never in a positive way. If you spend your time dwelling on what is good, what is pure, what is lovely, what is true and honest, 
then it is pretty safe to say that your chances of being visited in the dark of night by two strange kids with black eyes are next to none. Keep looking up, but not for UFOs. Keep an open mind, but only let the truth in. Stay positive, stay safe, and stay away from the black-eyed children. Thanks for listening to Scary But True Campfire Stories presented by Dudes Camping. Narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. Do you have a story that needs to be told? Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail with your scary but true story and we'll consider it for broadcast. Please hit the like button if you enjoyed this story and leave a comment. Any character's likeness is pure coincidence. If you are a black-eyed child or identify as a black-eyed child but are really a 52-year-old man, then please stay off the streets. They aren't safe for you anymore. Until next time, we will see you around the campfire.